Dismantling the system requires that people be honest with where they're at and allowing people who are able to see a new America, one where diversity is celebrated, one where we're given resources, just point blank, if you are a part of a vulnerable community, uh, giving those people who can see that vision leadership positions. Like, stop holding on to the leadership if you're not ready for the new world. Episode 5. Welcome to the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, a podcast for activists, advocates, and allies working to make our communities equitable through artistry. Each episode, I am joined in conversation by an artist or arts facilitator who has been paving the way in hopes of learning from their expertise and experience. Through action and unity, we can create a better tomorrow today. Let's go. Today we are joined by Nicole Johnson, she, her, founder and creative director of Giovanna Productions Move and an NY-based diversity and inclusion consultant. Nicole is the founder of Edify, dismantling systemic oppression program and works with institutions to shift culture towards anti-racism and empathy for vulnerable communities. Giovanna Productions Move is a nonprofit arts and education company with upwards of 650 members of all ages in 16 states and nine different countries. Giovanna Productions provides community leaders with the resources, funding, and platforms that are needed to produce socially responsible artistic films, shows, galleries, programs, events, and fundraisers. Annually, Giovanna Productions presents a community-driven effort entitled Move, Motivation, Opportunity, Vision, Entertainment. In this assembly, members are encouraged to produce artistic pieces and events, films, visual art, performance art, music, spoken word, classes, workshops, that raise funds and awareness for a variety of social issues, causes, and nonprofit advocacy programs. You can find Nicole and her work online at proudtobeamover.com and on Instagram at proudtobeamover. That's proud, the number two, the letter B, a mover, or at Nicole J. Move. Welcome, Nicole, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, such a pleasure, and I'm so excited to dive into this work with you. Um, so first, I want to get started um, talking a bit about uh, learning and learning with community. So one of the facets of your work that I find most interesting is your continual quest to carve out your own paths of education, right? So uh, you went to NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Um, I also went to NYU, so I'm a little bit familiar with the program, though I was at Tisch. Um, but for those folks who don't know, um, students at Gallatin, and correct me if I'm wrong, you get to go in and create your own major and your own field of study. Isn't that correct? Exactly. Fun experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested by this. Um, you decided to study individualized, uh, sorry, you decided to study social entrepreneurship, ethics, mm -hmm. management, and production. Um, in high school, you moved from Florida to New York City by yourself to attend a performing arts school. And now you continue to help others find their own paths through curiosity uh, to learn and build towards justice. Um, so I'm hoping you can describe what your guiding principles are as you forge your own path in continuing education and how do you identify which directions to follow in this? 
Yeah. Um, so the guiding principles are definitely follow your gut and your intuition, challenge yourself, um, and surround yourself with wonderful people. That Those are really my three guiding principles when it comes to my education paths, and there are many. I spend a lot of time um, asking questions because I, I really just am fascinated with learning not only like the cognitive processes of it, but just what comes from having new information. I find it to be kind of earth shattering when you are able to take on a new theory or concept. And then if you have the gusto and the excitement to actually apply that learning, your whole world changes. And I love that process. And I think that's why I keep doing it. And my intuition really much, I think um, my intuition does this thing where it just pushes me every time to say, all right, now if you learn this, what happens there? So I get into a lot of rabbit holes of information. um, And I just thoroughly enjoy what happens when I burrow further down into a particular topic. And I always think of it like a video game where you, the further you like dig down and the little coins are released in the air. Uh, that's kind of my, my way of uh, pursuing my education. Gallatin was my mom's choice, actually. She was all like, this is where your brain will thrive. And it's very true. Um, Gallatin requires you to have enough discipline to hold yourself accountable and to be able to advocate for yourself in a room to say, this is what I have learned and this is how it will apply to this particular industry. Um, and that really has done me justice in every field from entertainment to city government to nonprofit work to corporate spaces. And I've just explored them all and just I've been able to tell people what my skill set is and what my knowledge base is from my experience at Gallatin. They just helped me to articulate because you have to figure out how to articulate when you have created your own major. Um, you have to tell people what your value is, unfortunately. That is like the, that's the, I think, the through line of American workplaces is like, how valuable are you? What can you do? And I don't enjoy that like sentiment, but I recognize that I can be really good at articulating myself and my skill set. Um, and when it comes to like which direction to follow, I actually, my godmother does this thing for me and I come from a Christian, back, Christian background. So I um, really lean on my faith for a lot of my decisions. But um, early on, she would tell me, Nicole, you really can't make a bad decision. It's just a choice. Um, and you learn from that choice and it's going to inform your growth from here on out. So perhaps, you know, you take a choice and it takes you a little further away from your original intention or your goal, but you've gained new information, um, that's going to be really useful in the process. So direction to follow, I definitely use my three guiding principles, but at the same time, I'm not stressed too much about making the wrong decision. I'm recognizing them all as learning points. Hmm. That's so good. That's such a good mindset to adopt um, mm-hmm. and feels very much like a growth mindset versus a scarcity mindset where you're approaching everything as having potential for growth. I love it. Yeah. Um, so diving into one of the learning spaces you've created um, and growth spaces that you've created, uh, MOVE, your 501c3 that you founded in high school and junior year of high school. I, I don't know what I was doing in junior year of high school, but certainly wasn't <laughs> founding a 501c3 organization. <laughs> um, yeah. 
You describe the first uh, venture into the move arena being born out of a resonant personal reflection culminating in um, a showcase or performance called Move for Autism. And I'm wondering in a similar vein of how you just described um, following your intuition, um, can you talk about how you identified this impulse to create art out of that need for justice um, and how that work at your young age um, came to fruition? Yeah, so my brother is on the autism spectrum and uh, he was diagnosed at five years old. Um, he's 21 now. And at that time, I had moved to New York City and was out here working in the entertainment business without my family. So my entire family stayed here and I was living with like rotating guardians or nannies in a way. And my distance with Grant in those in that year, Grant is his name, um, that distance I felt I felt horribly responsible for like the potential of him not growing because I understood the family unit to be something that was just extremely valuable and I had kind of broken that by pursuing my own career the family made that decision it really wasn't just me saying this is where I want to go it was actually a pretty difficult um task to like recognize that I would be leaving my family to pursue something that we all felt I was destined to do something in New York. So it was that balancing of like, but you're here for your brother, but you also have a larger calling perhaps. And there was just this, this um, guilt, I think, honestly, that led me to wanting to do something for my brother. And at the time, not knowing anything about autism, really the research with for the autistic community has grown in so many ways the public consensus on it at the time was that it was a disease i think that we didn't think of it as a disorder that we didn't think about them as beautiful contributors to society so i was in a totally different headspace when it came to autism um and through my through my exploration of what autism was and my relationship with my brother I recognized and made several shifts in like, how do I view this experience that my brother is consistently having? Um, and then how do I want other people to view it? And how can I provide him with resources? And how do I advocate for a mother who has an autistic son and is in the grocery store and is having a hard time in the middle of one of his, uh, partic like an episode of some sort? And all of those questions were just fully on my heart kind of day and night as I'm separated from him in New York and feeling that guilt of like, aren't you responsible for your brother? Aren't you your brother's keeper? Um, and I would express those things to my friends and I would express those things to my teachers because I'm very vocal about my feelings. And I think that's a very large part of my activism is to say that this feeling is going to propel me. And it did. It set me up to create my first show, Move for Autism, where we created stories that helped people to not necessarily have to understand autism. But honestly, we were talking about just relationships. We were talking about family relationships. We were talking about friendships. We were talking about um, relationships between teachers and students. And we were putting those in the forms of art, of artistry, of dance. Um, and we loved, we loved that I guess camaraderie so much um, and we realized that in between those numbers we could then introduce people to a community that they may have never spent time thinking about and that was the autistic community. So Move for Autism is highly inspired by my just 
dire want to be of service to my brother uh, and then combining it with my love for artistry and just seeing where it went when I told my friends about it. And I think that is the magic of artistry and the magic of being vocal about where you're at and your feelings um, because a lot of people will jump on board and support you. Um, we're recognizing that a lot now um, in this time that we're experiencing and I just am always encouraging people to just be vocal about where you're at when it comes to your activism because you never know who's there to support you. Hmm. I want to pull on a thread. Um, I heard you identify guilt as one of uh, the propelling factors that got you into this work. Um, and it made me think of our last episode with Shauna Williams. Um, Shauna talked about anger being a fueling force um, in her artistry that called her to action in this way as well. Um, and of course, there's many other things that create a holistic sense of why we get into art. But um, I think something really magical, uh, and you were talking about the magic powers of what we do and the art that we create, is taking these feelings of anger, guilt, as you identified, um, and using art as an empathetic bridge to get to something more productive, something more um, beneficial, something in both of your cases that has pointed towards justice. So just highlighting that parallel that I'm, I'm hearing that both you and Shauna have um, pulled upon, um, whether it be anger, guilt, or something else, um, using your movement, um, Shauna using her paintbrush um, to forge through to something uh, productive and, um, generous as well yeah amen to that it's um a beautiful thing to have these feelings and to be artists who can wield them and create beautiful uh, contributions to society and culture I think it is I'm learning every day now how special that is um, because I'm recognizing that a lot of people do not have the capacity to navigate these feelings let alone create something from them that can help to e help us evolve um so yeah, thanks for calling it out. Guilt is actually one of my favorite things in the anti-racism slash diversity and inclusion world. Because I'm all like, yeah, that feeling has so many things connected to it. It's like rumbling with pain and shame and vulnerability and like expectation of yourself. There's so many things packed into it. They could all be their own, you know, they could all be their own little worlds, but it's all wrapped up in that word of guilt. So yeah, but... I'm learning that guilt is may not be the best word all the time for it because it is associated with so many negative things, but it's a feeling that I know that all of us are experiencing right now um, as we're as we're seeing this reckoning happening throughout 2020 and 2021. Mm. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I want to talk about edify now. Um, you created a subset of move, correct? It is a subset of move. It is. It's a, I would consider it more of a curriculum, uh, but it's mm -hmm. growing into a subset because plenty of people are uh, demanding more of it, I think. Yes. And rightfully so. It's so good. Um, so it is called edify, um, which, and quoting from your website, strengthens one's capacity to advocate for justice in a chosen workplace, institution, or community of one's choice in the face of injustice, end quote. It is um, a five-week ongoing collection of workshops that you lead, um, of which I had the opportunity to join in on one, and which I urge you, um, curious listener, to check more uh, out about. Um, you can find more information at proudtobeamover.com slash edify. Um, so in this, you've created 
curriculums to help guide others on paths similar to your own in addressing injustice through the artistry and through creation. Um, so on MOVE's website, it describes the task of the creator to, quote, research and think critically about a social issue or cause in an effort to create a corresponding piece or program that educates and provokes the minds of people in their communities, end quote. So can you quickly give us, or not quickly, feel free to opine as long as you'd like. <laughs> um, can you give us a glimpse into what this process that you've created looks like? Um, and how you've chosen to structure it as you have. And also um, if folks would like to join in this work with you, how they can do so. Definitely, so I'll start off by just saying, if you're interested in joining us, um, I would ask you to check out our uh, proud to be a mover Instagram handle. Um, and that's the number two, the letter B a mover and just DM us, check in with us. You can also check out the website, uh, like Taylor said, proudtobeamover.com slash edify, and you can message us there. Um, or hit me up via Instagram, Nicole J. Move, just to get that stuff out of the way. Uh, and then hopefully you find this stuff intriguing enough that you will actually hit me up. But um, so edify, what's so fascinating about edify is that it's actually just another iteration of my work that I started on the main stage of my high school in, you know, 2000 and when was that? 2009. Um, and I think what I am so thankful for is to see that full circle because sometimes in the midst of this work, you get a bit lost and you think that you are veering from a, a particular path. But it's wonderful to see 10, 11 years later now that I'm like, yes, you are doing the same exact thing that you were doing in high school. It is now just um, a more evolved version of the work with stronger questions, with, a dif with different experience, with stronger challenges for yourself and the people who are engaged in the work. So to say that, I think, is just something that I'm just really proud of and very thankful for. But what Edify does is it takes you through these five steps, identity, imagination, influence, impact, and initiative. Um, I start off with identity, um, similar to how Move for Autism began with my identity and the things that I was recognizing in relationship to the autistic community and how my identity as my brother sister intersected with that community. How could I be of service? What parts of my identity um, were hindering me from understanding their experience, what parts of my identity could help me to illuminate their experience. Spending so much time with my identity in those first few years, experiencing all of the things that come with guilt, as we were talking about, um, and responsibility for your sister or your brother or your sibling. Um, I think that that identity work leads to a burst in imagination, which is the next step in, in um, Edify. And the imagination work is like, imagine who you can be for this community with everything that you know about your identity. Go much further than the normal because we get very used to saying, ah, you know, I could do this, but this institution potentially hinders me from doing that for this, you know, vulnerable community. We get really stuck in very low level thinking. And I love imagination. I love imagining the potential of large scale movements being like catalytic and shifting culture. It's just the stuff that I dream about. Um, and so that's what imagination, that entire step is go as far as you can, imagine yourself as a superhero, as a justice advocate, being of service to this particular vulnerable community and what are your powers? 
what is your ER noun? Are you an igniter? Are you a healer? Are you um, a teacher? Are you a cheerleader? Like, what is it? Are you a torchbearer? There's so many different ones. Uh, but nonetheless, imagination is just a really fun step where you're connecting the dots between the things that you already know um, and trying to create, I think, stronger islands of thought um, so that you can imagine yourself kind of stepping up onto those islands and like building a larger landmass of thought and advocacy for that community. And then you get to influence, which is the third step. It's all about, okay, now that I have all this information about my identity and I can imagine who I can be for this community, where do I actually have influence? Where are my windows of influence? Is it right there in my community? Is it on my social media page? Is it um, within my institution? Am I connected to policy? Am I connected to community change? Where can I impact? And that's an easy jump over to the next thing is that once you understand those influences or the the windows of influence, how strong is your impact? What are you going to be able to utilize? What tools, what techniques, what conversation pieces, what's your messaging like? How strong of a punch is it going to make? Um, an impact, as we all know with Edify, uh, we recognize that everyone is down to train for this work, but it's really about what measurable results can I make at the end of my five steps? Um, because otherwise, we're just going to, we all know this work around anti-racism. We all know that we would much rather be anti-racist than racist. I mean, we would hope that the majority of people are at that level. But nonetheless, it is about the initiative, which is our step five. After you've gone through those first four steps, what initiative can I take that's going to have measurable results where I can then say, if I had not gone through those five steps, I wouldn't have seen this, this version of this project, of this change in my community, in this change of my, uh, or in this change of myself, because a lot of people spend the edify cycle figuring out what are the things within me that need to shift so that when I step into an environment, it will shift as well. Um, so there are there are those five steps showed up in my first Move for Autism show that I did. Um, and they ended with a product on a stage with 400 people in the audience um, of a high school kind of like, we had no idea what it was gonna be. Um, and at like $10 a ticket, we had made $3,000 by the end of that night. And it just was not, and and offered like student seating and stuff where younger students could just come in. It was just such a beautiful end of my cycle of my five steps. And I wanted to offer that cycle to several other people. So I tried for several years to do that without a structure until more recently when I was like catapulted or I was like launched into this work through a very painful experience with racial gaslighting. And I said, I need to create a step-by-step -step because I don't think people understand the detriment of racial gaslighting and social aggressions in our workplaces. And I was like, if I need to create a step-by-step, -step, I will. And I did. <laughs> and it turned into Edify and has been doing so well. And I'm so thankful that it's something I'm so familiar with because take, telling you those five steps is just like telling you the process of my life with every single social issue I've addressed with artistry. Um, and it just feels really simple to be able to share the five steps now in a workbook on a Saturday in an hour and a half class. <laughs> so yeah.
It is such a generous gift that you have created because we are in a moment right now where so many people are identifying that being an ally isn't enough um, and that advocacy and activism is, well, it's been needed for a very, very long time for the entire history of our country. Um, but people are starting to grapple with it, especially in this moment. And what you're doing is creating um, a framework and a toolkit for folks to walk through that to actually achieve what they are saying that they want to. Um, and it is such a great gift that you've given your community um, and the entire community who gets to witness it. So we will link it in the show notes. I really highly mm -hmm. recommend everyone um, check it out um, and see for yourself um, what those steps could mean in your own life. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs> of course. What's up, everybody? My name is Amara Janae Brady. I'm a generative artist and a cultural dramaturg from Chicago, now based on Lenape land or Brooklyn, New York. And next month on Saturday, February 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Zoom, obviously, I'll be facilitating a workshop, looking back to steer forward, history fueling action. We'll be talking about hope as a discipline and looking at the warnings that folks like Octavia Butler and Alice Childress gave us and brainstorming how we can take their words and ideas into the new worlds we're trying to create. You can reserve your spot at antiracistartist.simpletix.com or via the link in the show notes. 10% of the proceeds from this workshop will go to the mutual aid fund, Black Women Exhale. I had the privilege of highlighting this org and I chose them because of the work they do by providing Black women and femmes with the much needed support that the world infrequently gives. I think that's all you need to know and I hope to see you in the Zoom sphere. Be well. All right, so we are going to switch gears and move into a new subset of topics. We're going to talk about how your work and your ideas have um, played off and continue to play off other people's. Um, so first, um, I want to share, um, and this is an exciting announcement. Um, we are releasing this episode on February 2nd, 2021. Um, and today we are also announcing that we are starting a new book club um, for our Anti-Racist Artist Podcast community, where we will be reading titles by authors um, whose voices we should be listening to. Um, and we'll be doing that together in community. So our first book club book um, this month in February, 2021 um, is going to be Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own by Eddie Gloud Jr. In it, Gloud highlights an excerpt from Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, sharing the late author's words, quote, to accept one's path, to accept one's past, one's history is not the same thing as drowning in it. It is learning how to use it, end quote. Additionally, you gave a phenomenal TEDx talk in 2014 in which you referenced W.E. Du Bois' concept of double consciousness, and you begin to interpret it as a 21st century ideal. You describe moving past the ownership of a, quote, culture of the oppressed and towards the idea that, quote, the double consciousness still exists, but realizing that folks don't have to be victims of it anymore, end quote. So I'm hoping you can talk about this idea that you've put forth, one of reclaiming possibility and agency on which I think Baldwin also speaks on a similar note and using history and context in service of a liberated future. And how does this show up in your work, in your life? Yeah, I'm fascinated that this TED talk still resonates because even though I think that it was very valuable information to share around the culture of the oppressed. I had imagined that that would be a bit outdated as I grew up, honestly, because I felt a, a bit 
naive to say that the culture of the oppressed um, was a concept that we were going to be able to abandon, right? Because I knew that at the time that I was a, I had call myself like a very, I have a lot, I have a like light skin privilege, even though I'm not that light skinned. Um, and I would say that I had light skin privilege because it's easy for someone who came from, I did have private school education. I had charter school education. I eventually got into public schools. I come from a, you know, a relatively well-off family. I felt that with like my mom's an anesthesiologist. My dad is the president of a marketing firm. I come from sustainable like living and I and I always thought that I was coming from that perspective that like I really did feel that the black community would actually say no that's not true Nicole I was very adamant about this now mind you that was a little bit of a precursor feel free to cut it out but the idea is that what ended up happening with the culture of the oppressed, I realized five years later, or what is it, 2014, okay, like six, seven, eight, seven years later, I realized that I actually still adamantly believe in what I said in that in that TED Talk, that we have to find ways to um, redefine the double consciousness in order to survive. Um, it is a part of our reality I am consistently riddled with issues of how I have internalized white supremacy, whether it's in my beauty standards or in my like weird like commitment to working so hard despite others not working as hard as me. Just all the issues of internalized white supremacy, right? I need to rid myself of those things. Um, and then I realize though at the same time, the culture of the oppressed tells me that I should feel a sense of like weightedness around that, right? I am still trying to rid myself of those things. I'm still trying to, um, what would you call this? I'm still trying to find joy on a consistent basis um, because I, in this past year, I've, and of course it was a rough year, but I felt entirely knocked out considering myself as a person of color. I was just all like, I like succumbed to the the weight of it all. Um, and this year, I'm probably going to go back and look at my TED Talk to try and learn from that girl who was all like, we don't have to be victims of this. Because I just let myself be a victim of it after that TED Talk on through every single one of my instances of racial gaslighting in the workplace, through the social aggressions I faced in the entertainment industry, through the um, discrediting I received as someone working in city government as a young black person, and I became a victim to it. Um, that was a very long roundabout way of saying that I strongly believe in uh, reclaiming that possibility of like there still being a way to have joy there's still being a way for me to understand my history as a way to liberate me, to lift me onto something higher. Um, but it is such a process of ridding myself of the things that have caused me to feel weighted. Um, and I mean, maybe... Taylor, I'll be very honest, like, I don't know for sure if that answered your question fully, but I realize that I am navigating that as a person of color every day, whether to jump into my mental health routine or to kind of recognize the plight of black 
and brown people in America. Um, and to recognize that getting up to do my mental health routine is a very active thing. It's like something that I have to like lift myself up to go take your walk, to do your journaling, to you know, release the things that you're angry about, to sit in prayer, to work on your visual art, just so that you could be ready to potentially go into a room to advocate for yourself as a person of color. It does feel like more than ever today that we need a rebirth of the double consciousness because otherwise we will drown. Um, and I think that's what you're looking to look uh, in this reading that you guys will all be doing, um, learning how to use it. I, I feel Edify helps me to do that. But I have to spend so much time rewiring my brain a bit um, in order to get myself to the place where I can sometimes even begin to think about it, you know? So feel free to ask me that question again if I didn't fully answer it. <laughs> but yeah, those are my thoughts on it. You did a great job. And I want to pull on a string that you started to talk about, which was this idea of sustainability and balancing um, this duality of needing to show up, but also take care of yourself. Um, and your own mental health. How uh, are, are you able to talk a bit on some of the successes that you found in doing so and some of the tools that you have in your um, wellness toolkit? Oh, yeah, definitely. So meditation has been my new, not new, I, I, I was a avid meditator early on, but now I'm aware of what's happening to my brain when I meditate. Um, and the amount of focus it provides, it creates this space and the neuroplasticity plasticity of it all. Um, that conversation is something that I'm spending more time understanding so that I can recognize that when I do this practice, something is changing in my brain. Um, and that my brain is my strongest tool, thank goodness that I have one, um, because it really just helps to contextualize my life um, I'm aware of my brain just like I'm aware of my body as a dancer. Uh, and I want to feed it not only with the right foods, uh, plenty of water, um, and I want to make sure that my brain can thrive in its environment. So sometimes I have to shift my environment entirely, whether that's me being like, you cannot be around these people or you cannot be, you can, you need to choose a different workspace because that one's going to be toxic or you need to travel to a different place if you're gonna be in the midst of quarantine and you need to feel a sense of safety and like thriving, then you need to move your location because environment plays such a big role in whether our brain can function. And then just the very simple things of like going to sleep at a reasonable hour, limiting my social media intake, uh, spending time doing things that just allow me to be creative and to do nothing, whether that's my visual art or if it's a, uh, candle making or working on my ukulele just allowing my brain to play and then of course you know ensuring that community that balance between community and time with myself and my higher power um, is real because I recognize that you can get really isolated um, I, I turned into a bit of a hermit when I was all like you're giving too much energy and so came back and I like became a bit of a hermit and then I was like okay now you need to open up and don't allow yourself to be afraid and to recognize that you can meditate on a particular mantra and shift your life. I was going through this portion of my life in the in the midst of quarantine where I was extremely afraid of things. And I was all like, that is not what I'm designed for. I need you to rework that in your brain, Nicole. 
um, because that's not serving you or anybody else right now. Um, and I had to rework those things and spend a lot of time convincing myself and convincing my brain to think a different way. Uh, so those are a few of my tools and they've been so beautiful. I also um, practice Tai Chi and that has been wonderful and a nice stretch every morning, like a uh, 15 minute stretching practice that opens up my chakras and helps me to just really set my body up to do the work of supporting my brain and supporting my uh, thought process. Hey there, we are so excited to share with you a new learning and engagement offering that we are launching this month in February, 2021, the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast Reading Community. Join us as we come together each month in community to read a book on racial justice written by an author of color. February's book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. It is a tremendous read by Eddie Gloud Jr. and dives into the late black queer author and activist's work during the civil rights era and how his lessons are relevant to our conditions today. This space for conversation will be led and guided in community by those of us present, and it will be facilitated by our very own program and community manager, Maricela Juarez. The event will take place on February 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This event is free, and you can reserve your spot and get the Zoom link at antiracistartist.simpletix.com. That's antiracistartist.simpletix.com. And the link is also in our show notes. We hope to see you there. So going back to our February Community Book Club read, in chapter one of Begin Again, Gloud writes, quote, Baldwin wrote in another after times, that of the collapse of the civil rights movement, bearing witness to a time when many thought the nation was poised to change, only to have darkness descend and change arrested. Grief and trauma joined with disappointment as Baldwin watched white Americans turn away from the difficulties of genuine change, often embracing a nostalgic appeal for simpler days when black people knew their place and weren't in the streets protesting in order to justify their refusal to give up the lie." End quote. Glaub describes the lie he mentions as the fatal flaw of people who settled America, the justification of chattel slavery by dehumanizing the oppressed and therefore not considering the harm and violence committed against black folks sinful or morally wrong. We see this systematic dehumanization in today's cultures of oppression. Gloud continues and calls out, quote, if there is a reason that the arc of what I've described above seems so familiar that the country finds itself on the precipice of significant change, only to turn its back on it all and double down on its historic ugliness. It's because I believe we once again find ourselves living in after times. Nearly half a century on, we are suffering through yet another terrible cycle in the tragic history of America." End quote. The question I have here, one that has been forefront on my mind and fodder for multiple iterations of questions for previous guests of the podcast, is how do we capitalize on the vitality of the moment we are in and create lasting change? How slash do you see us being able to affect, be effective in dismantling this terrible cycle of American oppression? And then a follow-up question to that is how might artists and artistry factor into that effort? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to not consider it a moment, is to understand that it is our ongoing responsibility um, to shift culture, um, and to essentially like burst ourselves out of the cycle. Um, 
we've been in this cycle. The cycle is literally ongoing, not only in America, but like the history of mankind is this ongoing cycle of like injustice. And I think that there is a sense of where we don't have, we have maybe we're lacking imagination to recognize that we can live in a world where the cycle doesn't exist, but we would have to make substantial changes in several of our institutions, in several of our environments. Um, And that also includes replacing people who are not fit to make those changes, uh, who are not confident enough and daring enough to allocate budget in ways that are different and allocating budget in a in ways that abandon our old cycles because we it's very common sense we do this thing where we like keep doing the same things and we think we're gonna get, get different results and it's just like at this point friends no I think we need to come to a understanding that some people do not want to change things therefore we do not change them and if they don't want to change things then they can't be in those spaces anymore that are essentially directing the trajectory of our country and so I think that this time, this interesting moment that we're in, is that reckoning that's getting people prepared to step down from their places of power because some people's in the guilt that they're going to experience is going to be too much and they're going to need to step down. And then some people are being propelled into leadership positions and into thought leadership positions, right? I'm one of those people that I feel is being propelled into the work of being at the forefront of conversations, which is something that I've been very interested in being. Um, And I, at many times, felt that I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't have the potential, but I wasn't pushing hard to get to the front of these spaces. I was kind of just, you know, living my life, doing my work. Perhaps I was just growing, right? Let me just chalk it up to that. But these days now I'm all like, no, I have a curriculum that I believe is worthy of compensation and of your time and of your investment. Please try it. Not even please try it. Try it. And I find now this confidence. Um, I even wrote a poem about this, that it was like, it's like Juneteenth all over again. It's like the slaves have been freed And we get this chance now to actually hand them their freedom. I feel that when this reckoning began, all of a sudden everyone was all like, Nicole, can you do something for us? Are you? And I was all like, you know what? I'm going to make sure I maintain my mental health. But at the same time, yes, I will take all these opportunities because they were not afforded to me before for some weird reason. Was it racism? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And so now I'm stepping out into it and I'm like, I'm going to apply for that. And I'm going to ask this person can you take a stab at my curriculum? I'm going to go to that larger scale theater or that casting office or wherever I feel um, I can be of use and say, I think I can be of use here because there was this internalized white supremacy that was telling me that I couldn't, that I just could not touch those things. So nonetheless, when it comes to the terrible cycle, it's about us stepping up into the places that we know we deserve and demanding and taking the things that we need. And then it's about people stepping down if they're not, if they're not about this new shift We all know the shift is away from the cycle because we're sick of it. And so if you're not vehemently ready to make the shift, it's time for you to step down. It's like, there's none of this like, oh, I'm thinking about working on, if you're not ready, mm -mm. just give the leadership to another person for a second, 
hand that like just literally that's what I feel about our country is like just hand some things over to a person to like a female of color real quick and watch things shift whether you like the way or that it shifts or not things will shift because we've been waiting to implement ideas for a very long time but there are just so many large barriers in in place so I think to answer that question dismantling the system requires that people be honest with where they're at and allowing people who are able to see a new America, one where diversity is celebrated, one where we're given resources, just point blank, if you are a part of a vulnerable community, uh, giving those people who can see that vision leadership positions. Like, stop holding on to the leadership if you're not ready for the new world. Um, Because... And the new world is not going to take anything from you. It's just going to offer additional freedoms or a well-deserved freedom to the people who have been trodden upon for such a long time. Uh, so that's difficult, I know. <laughs> but I think that as we stand up in our joy and our sustainability, um, they will start to back down to say, I think that this person you know, needs a chance to lead um for a second why not you know what i mean um do you want me to answer the artistry question too yes please yeah so i think artists are cultural agents more so than they are entertainers and i think this is a moment that's very similar to the um renaissance um after the middle ages there was this sense of we want something new And I think artistry opens the door, not only to empathy driven, like it tells stories, so we're able to empathize with new communities, but it also shares the stories of America and the diversity of artistry, I think is what we're looking for. It's like, I I don't need another Marley and me. (laughs) I don't need another white show. You know, I would love to see a show about a a Bangladeshi couple or, a couple from you know Ecuador or like I'd love to see the stories of immigration or of the cultures that have been a part of this beautiful immigration story that is America um, and then we're all appreciating these new diverse lives um, in a way to understand more of our country but we're doing it through artistry that's the only way like I'm not gonna understand anything about Japanese culture Um, If I don't know and spend some time looking at some anime um, and understanding, you know, how film and theater has an entire world for many of the cultures that are represented here in America. There's like a world for them, but none of they're not mainstream. Like we're like we're looking at Netflix and you see the same little tiny thumbnail with the same type of white people. Um, And thankfully, we're starting to see some diversity, but there is a world of stories everywhere in this country of so many different types of people. And we ought to start uh, recognizing that that is what our artistry can be for, specifically in this moment. So it's kind of calling forth all of these storytellers of different cultures and then pushing aside all the other white stories to say, can we place this story at the forefront for a second? not even for a second can we place them all here and let them stay here 
on this, you know, main screen of Netflix, of Hulu, of Amazon. I don't support Amazon, but nonetheless, you know, there is uh, there, there's something beautiful about the storytelling of artistry that I'm excited for us to open up that gate for the new renaissance, um, because I think it's going to lead us to healthier living. We will jump right back in the conversation in just a moment. I am excited to invite you to join the conversation with us on Instagram and Facebook. We are posting sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, some powerful quotes, and announcing workshop and engagement opportunities specifically for this community. We are on Instagram at antiracistartist and on facebook.com slash AAP community. We look forward to having you join the conversation. I want to dive into some of the core questions that we ask on the podcast, um, because what you were just talking about uh, made me think of this. Do you believe that artistry has an inherent social responsibility? And if so, what is that responsibility and to whom? Yeah, I think responsibility is a strong word because I recognize that artists or artistry um, is inherently culture shifting, right? Like inherently you contribute a piece of art and it is in the books of culture and it and it will do something to the world and it contributes to the world or contributes to culture so i i wonder when we use the word responsibility like social responsibility that is the type of artistry that i curate i'm very interested in messages and in helping people to understand justice through artistry right but i also will share a piece of music from my ukulele that has nothing perhaps to do with social justice and that feels like I'm contributing to culture whether I'm being responsible and socially responsible I don't think so in those spaces it it really depends though because you know 20 years later someone can say Nicole wrote this you know R&B alternative song about you know space and stuff and it was Nicole Johnson a black person from South Florida that you know you know it could like change in 20 years in retrospect you look back at it and it's a cultural piece as it relates to who I am um but I think that that and and in fact maybe as I'm answering this question I do realize that perhaps eventually all art becomes socially responsible um that it does tell the story of a um of a vulnerable community or an individual that was a part of the world um and it serves as an artifact that helps us all to then be responsible somehow whether that's i listened to it and it exposed me to new sound i listened to it and it moved me to think about black and brown people i listened to it and it gave me a, a different perspective so perhaps you're right it might be inherently socially responsible but I recognize that the social responsible artistry that I do now is very intentional. It's very much about what happens to you after you sit in there and you recognize that there is a message that I'm receiving from this piece of theater. What do I go and do with it? Can I also contribute to helping that vulnerable community? You know, that's that's where I see social responsibility uh, today um, and how I function but I do recognize the potential for it to be inherently social respons- socially responsible down the line. Hmm. What is your definition of anti-racist and how does anti-racism factor into your own artistry? 
Yeah, I think this was a funny question for me because I don't normally use the term anti-racism. Um, I think that the definition of it is to choose to evolve or choose to grow or choose to learn from your past. Um, I think that that is what anti-racism is for Americans. I'm thinking a little bit more nationally now in that if we don't choose to learn from what happened, if we decide to like uh, ignore facts, if we decide to downplay slavery or downplay several years after emancipation and the trauma that it has caused the black and brown community and the disadvantages that we experience, if we choose to ignore those things, I believe that we are racist, honestly. I think that that is racist because, by like default in a way because you're choosing not to, you're either going this way or you're going the other way. You're either going towards racism or you're going towards liberation. There's At this point, like, I think there's potentially a redefining of this term of racism because everyone's like, oh, racism is overt social aggressions towards people of, according to their race. And I'm like, yes, you overtly are aggressive towards me when you choose to deny facts. It's just the truth. Um, people don't want to. People don't want to recognize the mechanics of that thought because it's too complicated. But it's very much truthful. When you deny our history, or you decide to downplay it, or act like it didn't happen, it's like you're contributing to racial gaslighting. You are not participating in the forward movement. So that's what I think anti-racism is. Um, and then how does it play a role in artistry or how does uh, anti-racism racism factor into my artistry? Well, because I'm, like you said, part of the growth mindset um, and I kind of engage in this constant evolution and feeling my feelings and then finding ways to uh, step forward and to remember my mistakes and to recognize when I might have contributed to social aggressions for a particular vulnerable community because I know we all have the potential to be an oppressor and I choose to do that in my learning and in just my being I feel that um, it allows me to be a better artist it allows me to create artistry that is anti-racist obviously but that is also going to forward us towards something that's grander rather than something that is um, embarrassingly like historical. I'm trying to move forward in in this world. You know, we're trying to move forward in this nation and see see who we can be. Before our interview, I asked you what the importance of anti-racist artistry is to you and you responded by saying, quote, "Truthfully, I don't think we have much of a choice anymore but to make anti-racist artistry a priority in our lives. The mental health of so many people depends on our ability to shift hearts and minds that will lead us all to safer environments for black and brown people." End quote. I often hear artists belittle the potency of their work by saying things like, art isn't rocket science, um, I'm not performing brain surgery, things like that. While both statements are obviously true, um, we often collectively diminish the potential of our artistry. Um, and this mindset, which may likely be tied to fear, undercuts what is possible. Um, and as you noted, our work has the potential to be revolutionary in our quest towards liberation. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how you have maintained your mindset of possibility and um, back on this idea of sustainability, 
how do you bring an aura of sustainability into your work um, to avoid burnout in this effort that is so important and yet can feel overwhelming and cyclical? Yeah, I have this really cool word that I received from a friend the other day around like a sunflower being in the midst of a big sunflower field. And I could choose to look to all the other sunflowers and give my energy to them. But if I kind of grow and look towards the sun um, and allow myself to kind of track the sun, I just grow and I can offer so much to so many other parts of our ecosystem, the birds, other types of ways to pollinate. And I can spread and share in a much more, what would you call it, expansive way. Um, if I are, if I'm, if I'm looking up to the sun rather than just like giving out to everyone and kind of like depleting. And so the sun for me is obviously my faith in my higher power and my relationship with that higher power and my idea of being a creation of being someone who's created. Um, and I love that part of my life that is so rejuvenating because when I do that, it literally sets me up for grace. It sets me up for, oh, wow, I am inadvertently helping someone that I didn't think I would be helping because I am allowing my source to give back to me. But I do this thing sometimes where I forget about that. And then I'll just be like, you know, a little sunflower out in in the field, just throwing my seeds out at everyone and stuff. And it's a mess. Um, But then someone reminds me to just look to the sun. Um, And that's actually in a good song, in a, a new song of mine called Look Up Melvin. Um, where, you know, looking to the sun is so necessary for us as people of color uh, who have just navigated so much in America. It's just like sometimes impossible to even like fathom the social aggressions and the gaslighting that we're experiencing on a consistent basis. It's like ridiculously painful. I'm like, how did like, how are we living at this point? Um, because it's just thinking about the history of it. And then experiencing the continued aggression and the disbelief of other people and they're like discrediting our reality. You're just like, how do you do this consistently? And it is the looking to the sun that I have to remember and the sense of like grateful gratitude work that I do about even simple things, just like the trees that I sit under in the morning when I go for my walk or the food that I'm eating or the people that I'm with or the fact that I have amazing ancestors that did really hard things and were so influential in building a country. You know, I, I got to flip it sometimes. And I think that this year in particular, I plan to do that because I think it's going to lead to increased energy and ability to do this work. Um, and I'm even like, I've literally set up the year where I said, why don't I just try this joy thing for like a year? And see what happens when I look to the sun the whole time. Um, and it probably will be an outstanding year, you know. Um, was that the, what else was, what, did I mess up the question? I, that's what I do for sustainability is what I mean. They're so good. Um, I love that, that imagery that you've offered us with the sunflower. The power of living in your own and that being the most generous and the most generative thing that one can do um, is being so connected to that and not allowing other things to bring you down because therefore, like you mentioned with the ecosystem, being able to um, therefore give more once you are connected to whatever your higher being is, what whatever your sun is to your sunflower. I love that. Yeah. Amen to that. 
Would you like free tickets to our upcoming community workshops? Would you like to support the work that we are doing of championing an equitable, inclusive, anti-racist future through the arts? I want to invite you to join us on this journey with exclusive access and content, allowing you to dive deeper into this arena with us. We have launched a Patreon account and we welcome your support for the work that we are creating. There are myriad perks available for us to thank you for your support, ranging from early access to episodes to free tickets to all anti-racist artist workshops, all the way up to credit as an associate producer of the show. Your support goes towards making donations to organizations on behalf of our guest artists, maintaining our podcast sites and services, and compensating folks for their work to make this podcasting community possible. This podcast and the work around it is supported by the generosity of folks like you, and we want to thank you for that. You can find out more information and join us at patreon.com slash antiracistartist. So each episode, we invite our guests to choose an organization to uplift, one that is creating a meaningful impact towards a more equitable, inclusive, accessible, and anti-racist future. Nicole has chosen Darkness Rising, an incredible organization led by the one and only Carlita Victoria. Darkness Rising partners with mental health professionals and uses art as a medium where the intersection of mental health, education, and art collide. Their goal is to inspire conversations about mental health, address issues which directly affect the Black community, and connect attendees to resources and erase the stigma. Nicole, would you like to talk a little bit about this organization and why you chose them to uplift? Yeah, so I um, I choose organizations often according to the people, and Carlita is my sister in so many beautiful ways. Um, Carlina and I met on our first contract doing hairspray in Utah, where I experienced some of the things that have driven me to do the work that I'm doing with diversity and inclusion. And I have seen her grow in such a phenomenal way. Carlita is one of my movers through the nonprofit, and I've been able to support her in a variety of ways that have just brought so much joy to my heart. But to see her holding up the black community, literally, is such a beautiful thing. I find her her drive and her commitment to her identity story and then transferring or transforming it into the work of helping others. I think she's done it so beautifully and she's been so courageous in the ways that she speaks out about what she's been through and what others might be going through. And she's just invited me into that work in so many ways as a choreographer, as someone who's done some of her live takeovers. And we do these, uh, we did this um, mental health kind of coloring uh, meditation session with uh, uh, others from her community. And she's just allowed me to be a part of her work as a producer. Um, And I love it. I find her to be such a transformative being and I'm inspired by her. So I wanted to highlight her work. Mm, thank you for that. And thank you for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, on behalf of Nicole, the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast has made a donation to Darkness Rising. And you can donate as well and learn more about their work at darknessrisingproject.org and on Instagram at darknessrisingproject. And make sure to watch out for their yearly um, music gala. Is it, it? I'm not sure gala is the right word, but they do an amazing event every year um, that brings their community together. So keep an eye out for that. Um, Before we go, Nicole, are there any other projects, organizations, or people that you'd like to highlight as leaders in this work to watch out for? Yeah, I think uh, I'd like to highlight DBJ Comedy, um, led by Dwayne Barres Jr., who is another one of my movers and is really doing some outstanding work with mental health, actually, in the comedy community. And I feel that Dwayne and both Carlita, I think they're moving towards 
being extremely influential people in the world. And I'm really excited for the day when we can all kind of look at each other and be like, I saw you from the beginning. Um, and so I wanted to shout out Dwayne because his work with DBJ Comedy has transitioned into the digital world and he is hosting comics online in very cool formats um, and giving people opportunities that are paid. Um, and as a black male producer doing that is like ridiculously amazing to do that online in the middle of COVID as he's also navigating his own personal sustain, uh, sustaining of his mental health. I think it's just um, another example of resilience and joy in the midst of this. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to add him to the list too. Mm, so good. And we will link his work in the show notes as well. Um, well, thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on and talking and sharing all of your wisdom and all of the words that you had to share. Um, I feel uh, so excited um, to have you part of this community and to have you um, share everything that you did. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for these amazing questions. It's bringing a lot of light to my life too. So thank you. Mm, thank you. The Anti-Racist Artist Podcast is produced by Subido Politico Productions, LLC, hosted by Taylor Ibarra, edited by Andrew Alcarez, and project and community managed by Maricela Juarez. To stay connected with the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, please visit us at antiracistartist.com, on Instagram at antiracistartist, or via email at antiracistartist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our podcast is made possible with the support of folks like you. You can get exclusive content and access to the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash antiracistartist. Theme music features vocals by Esteban Suero, Forrest Van Dyke, Kennedy Kanagawa, Jameson, Minji Kim. Ah.